1: So have you ever struggled with a problem or decision where the solution, it just seemed impossible to see, yet obvious once someone else pointed it out? I know I'm raising my hand. I have been through this so many times. You start kind of kicking yourself for not seeing something that now appears so simple and clear when you're not alone. Nearly everyone has moments where we get stuck, where we limit our solutions and can't quote, read the label from inside the jar. How do we gain clarity on our own situations and start making better decisions? Well, that's where we're heading in today's Spark Hot Take with Brain Trust member, strategic advisor, executive coach, founder of the Productive Flourishing Consultancy and author of the critically acclaimed Start Finishing, Charlie Gilkey. And his forthcoming book, by the way, Team Habits is set to be published in August of 2023. So Charlie and I discuss the unconscious patterns the assumptions and emotions that keep us from seeing our own situations clearly. We explore simple yet powerful techniques for questioning our default perspectives, inverting problems to gain fresh insights, and seeking input from others who can serve as mirrors to reflect our blind spots back to us. You'll walk away with practical tips and prompts you can use immediately to get unstuck and spot options you've been missing right under your nose. Charlie explains how questioning old paradigms, reevaluating stakes, and shifting mindsets can reveal potential opportunities we have been oblivious to due to being stuck inside the jar, as Charlie describes it. So get ready for an inside look at the inner workings of the human mind and how we can overcome our natural limitations to make better decisions and get back in motion. So excited to dive in with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.
0: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
1: Charlie Gilkey, it is always good to be back in conversation with you. And today's topic is kind of fun because it is based on a phrase that I heard you use many, many, many years ago. And I have heard you use many times since then, and it spoke to an idea that has not gotten less relevant at all over the years, only more relevant for anybody, especially who's considering any move, any decision, whether it's your career, whether it's work, whether it's starting a business, whether it's leaving a career, whatever, it could be a personal life decision, whatever it may be. I heard you use this phrase. Many, many times ago. And I have, by the way, since used it many times myself, always crediting you.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that.
1: Um, and seen it repeated all over the internet, not always crediting you. But the phrase is this, you can't read the label from inside the jar. So today we're going to unpack that phrase, what it means, and how the need for that phrase to be offered commonly arises. So maybe let's start out with the circumstance, the type of experience or moment that somebody is in when you might be tempted to say, you know, there's something I want to share with you.
0: You know, I normally use that phrase. um, And so the way I typically say it is, it's hard to read the label when you're stuck inside the jar, right? Um, So I appreciate the friendly amendment on that, but it actually usually comes up. After I've talked to someone through a situation, so they'll bring a situation and they'll be like, this is, this, and then I'll sort of unpack it and say, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what you're saying. Also, here's your body language around this. And there's this sort of cascade of epiphanies that they start having. And then it usually happens to like some obvious point to them that they didn't see before. And they're like, how did, what how did I not see that? I've been dealing with this for six months or six years. And that's normally where I'll say, like, it's hard to read the label when you're stuck inside the jar. Because what happens is when we, and, and this is in brain science, this is in so many different ways when we think about problem solvents. When you're when the problem is local to you, you can miss a lot of the salient details that are clear for someone external, right? Or we operate on so many unconscious decisions, which sounds weird. When we think decisions, we think we are rational people looking at premises, looking at conditions and factors, and then we we'll make a decision. That's how we normally think. Of it. But really, when we look at the primal urges or the decisions or the way that our unconscious is pulling things together, if you look at Thinking Fast and Slow by the Kahneman squad or Daniel Kahneman, um, we'll see that there's this way in which conclusions and decisions are continually made that keep us stuck in that same paradigm. And it's when you talk to someone else that you can, they start unpacking what seems to be the real way you're making the decision. And you can point out like something that's absurd. And so what usually happens on this is someone, here's a problem. Here's what I'm trying to do. Here are a few things to think about. Here's why I'm stuck. And when you start to pull out some of the assumptions that you can see them making, those assumptions always sound absurd. So like the very common, I think we've talked about this on the Spark podcast before, that very common van down by the river catastrophe that, that many people play. Like if they make one decision, one wrong decision, they're going to be in a van down by the river, right? And it's just catastrophe. Um, and you get stuck because people will make a low stakes, reversible, mitigatable decision, high stakes, irreversible, and non-mitigatable Right, And so, when you unpack, like, oh, it's all resting upon this assumption that if you make this one bad choice, your life is forever over. And they're like, well, that's not true. And then they'll start to then backwards calibrate all the other things that they're talking about. They're like, oh, oh, oh. (laughs) Right? And it just opens up a freedom space. So, that's why it's so hard when you're stuck inside the jar because you don't see that you have that absurd premise or you don't see that you've been operating in the same way for six years, right? Where someone around you have been like, you do know that like about every Thursday you do this. Um, I'll give another example. This is me getting out of the jar with myself, Jonathan, you know, this because of our relationship every July, June, July, I have my summer stupefaction and like, it just gets bad. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I regret all the choices that I've made all those types of things. And when I was younger, I used to say, you know what, like, what's wrong? Maybe I do need to do that. But now, and you know, in my forties, I'm like, no, it's just a pattern. It's just that time of the year that I'm outside of this jar. I'm outside of this person that feels like they don't know what's going on. That feels like, you know, can't see it. And I'm just like, you know what? In six weeks, I'll feel differently. So right now, I just don't make any major strategic decisions. I just like pretend as much as I can that um, things are going. And every, Jonathan, you've been there. You've been there for nearly a decade and some change. About six weeks later, I'm like, okay, I know what I'm doing now.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because it ties in with what I just occurs to me is probably a version of that same quote that you have that um, predates yours by some time. And it was something that I remember hearing in some recordings of the legendary uh, physics professor Richard Feynman say mm-hmm. which is basically rule number 1 like you don't ever fool yourself like rule number 2 you are the easiest person to fool and so i want to talk a little bit about maybe like some things to think about to make us a little less foolable or a little more aware a little easier And that may be just internal practices, but also like who you might surround yourself with to help. But I I wanted to even just a little bit more into the phenomenon itself, because we've all been there and we will all be there again. This is not about how smart you are. Mm -hmm. It is not about how skilled you are. It is not about how accomplished you are. You could have been the founder of a unicorn. You could be the CEO of a global enterprise. You could have had perfect SAT scores. It doesn't matter. This affects every single person. What do you think is actually going on with with all of us where we have these blinders on that, that literally just stop us from seeing things on a regular basis that often are profoundly obvious to people who are not us? And this is not just in work. This is in relationships. This is in every aspect of life.
0: I'll actually push what you said even further. You are more likely to fall into these traps if you're super smart and credentialed and Mm. you've done all those things before. Because when I'm unpacking these things, what almost always happens is that someone has piled a conceptual layer and a conceptual maze on top of what they feel. They're afraid of something or they feel ashamed, or you go to those root level things and we just pile this cerebration on top of it. Right. And so, I, I, you might remember this, Jonathan. So, in start finishing, I was talking about decisions and things like that. And so, like, the, you know, talking about courage actually. And what I said is, like, take a problem you're thinking about right now or that, that you've been vexed by for a while. And I asked two questions. Question one What's the smartest next step you could take? Question two. What's the most courageous next step you can take? For most people with that first one, it's like, right? You just see the, the Rubik's cube turning and there's possibilities unfolding. But usually with that second question, there's an arrest. There's like, oh crap, I know exactly what that is. And so what it's a way of saying all of that overthinking and cerebration and modeling and scenario planning and all that kind of whatnot covers up the real emotional decisions that are about to be made, right? Um, And you can't outthink your heart, no matter how hard you try. It's going to catch up with you. So if you build up this massive mental model that's basically keeping you from being scared and taking a courageous next step, you're going to put even more high stakes, even more weight on the decisions that you might make and the models and how right they need to be because it's trying to counter that fear right? If you're worried about looking stupid in front of a bunch of people, what you're going to do is really pile up a bunch of things and then be hypercritical about what you piled up and be over-perfectionist about what you filed you filed up because, oh God, I did all this work. I can't have all this work done and still be looking like a fool. So, whatever you're trying to cover up, that's what happens. And so, when people put the blinders on, usually what they're covering up is how they feel about something and the fear that they have around them. And we all have different fears and different things that drive us in that way. But we we think we are rational creatures that can always override the emotional creatures that we are. The reality is we're emotional creatures that can often use rational faculties to help navigate things. But at root, it's that beating heart that will drive us forward, but can also keep us stuck.
1: Yeah. so that that classic saying: we are not human beings having a spiritual experience; we're spiritual beings having a human experience. You could also say we are we are not rational beings having an irrational experience; we're irrational beings having a rational experience. And and maybe that's a fleeting experience too. And it's like how do you pull yourself out of that? But our default, I, and I think a lot of it comes down to this notion also that our default tends to be. That like our default mode is rationality and clarity and objectivity, and that we have the ability to turn that lens on ourselves and truly understand what is happening. And in fact, that is not entirely true. It might not even be close to entirely true that there is, there are layers of scripts that are running in all of us that obscure us from being clear about like the reality of our situation.
0: Yeah. This is where listeners, if you don't know, I actually have a background in philosophy, right? So, and I say that because as I'm starting to talk about David Hume and his critique against pure reason, um, and the Kantian platonic ideal that was at the time, which is exactly what you've said. And that our culture still adopts, but Hume's point is it's not, that we're rational creatures, like it's not that we have a goal and our rationality makes it work. What happens is we are creatures that have desires, and our rational mind feels figures out how to pursue those desires, or how to avoid the fears, right? And it took like it lived in philosophy for a long time, and then you know the behavioral economics came out and realized, oh wait a second, there might have been something to that, right? And so when you hear um, who's the guy to write, who wrote Nudge? He, his name eludes me right now. Um, it's not Thaler, anyways. Book called Nudge. It talks about the difference between econs and humans. And econs make all the rational decisions, and it's perfectly clear, and they're objective, and you know. We build our whole mental model of what it means to be human based upon econs. We build our economy, we build our politics. But the problem is humans are not econs, right? Um, and so we need nudges, we need all these sort of things. So yeah, absolutely that's the case. And I think once people I think people have shame around not being an econ around not being that rational creature. Because if they were the stoic rational creatures, they would be able to do all these things. They're not that, and that's what humans are, so therefore there's something wrong with them. Nope. It's the, it's the mental model that you're in. It's the paradigm that you've got wrong. And this is where, to your point, there are a few internal practices, and there are just social factors that we need to think about. So when we start thinking about mental models, one of my favorite goes to is to always invert the problem, right? So if you're super scared about the van down by the river, you can invert that and say, well... How might this very problem be the thing that makes you abundant, and makes you wealthy and prosperous, right? Or if you assume, you know, whatever the constraint is, take that thing that you think is the tension point and invert it and see how that problem might change. right? So that's what I just did, actually, with the econ versus human things. If it's a problem that you're not an econ all the time, and you make that a whole thing that you strive for, well, you're going to end up with a life of a lot of stilted interactions and suffering. That's what's going to happen, right? If you invert it and say, what happens if I actually accept that I'm a human being having a human experience and I have these sort of ways that fall, like you can actually overcome that, right? You can actually do that and probably enjoy being human at the same time. So the same one, always inverted. Two, instead of thinking in terms of absolutes, think in terms of probabilities, How likely is that thing going to happen, right? Why do you think it's 80% versus 60%? It breaks that mold of this is absolutely what's going to happen and and, and that sort of determinism. Um, So that's another thing that you can think about. The third thing I kind of alluded to it earlier is really questioning the stakes that you've put on that challenge that you're doing. Like if it's been really high stakes, you can always say, but is it really high stakes though? And if it is, why is it so high stakes? What is it, like if it's just, if your fear is that you're going to look stupid in front of your team of four to eight people, well, unless you have a pattern of looking stupid and and, like that sort of things, like how big of it, like you get to say, oh, damn, that was dumb. If you really were dumb, (laughs) right? Ooh, I missed that. That's the worst that's going to happen, (laughs) right? But what's the best that might happen is you might imply an idea or you might unveil something that just has been a team assumption that no one's ever stated before. But then when they stated, they realize maybe it's a little absurd and we need to change that. Or maybe that's not true. But if you sort of change the stakes of whatever you're considering and realize that most of life is experimentation anyways, and there's probably a way you can make a low scale experiment or trial about it, it opens up a lot of freedom for you to be like, oh, there, m- there might be simpler ways or this doesn't have to be hard or this doesn't have to be this thing that rules the rest of my life. Um, so those are the sort of three tips there.
1: Um, but by the way, um, the book they mentioned, Nudge, which anyone who's listening, it's a fantastic book. You should read it. It is. In in fact, it was Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein who wrote that book. uh, Um, Two legends in uh, behavioral economics. So, So here's my question. Let's say you're the person who's in the having trouble reading the label because I'm inside the jar mode. Mm -hmm. right? Um, It's not necessarily built around catastrophe scenarios or anything like that. It's just that these, you know, like it's hard for us to really see the circumstance that we're in and all of the assumptions that we're making and potential limitations on possible decisions or venues. You know, it's just, it's difficult to see that. When this unfolds in a context, I mean, it's great to be able to work with someone like you as a coach or an advisor Mm -hmm. who can basically sit across from you And say like, and ask questions, seed some of the prompts that you just seeded and then just say like, you know, like share some observations that would make somebody wake up and say, Oh yeah, now that you mentioned it, it's clear as day to me that this is actually the reality. But what if you don't have easy access to that person, but you do, you work in a team context, you're working with a group of other people, right? What are your, your recommendations on how you can tap Potentially the other members of your team to be those mirrors, to be those people who ask the questions that awaken insight and clarify and bring to the surface things that you just can't see because you are that person who like is inside the jar and having trouble reading the label. What are some suggestions or tips to do that in a team context without going to a place where or, or, or how, how do you do that in a safe way? How do you do it in a way where it doesn't create dysfunctional dynamics where people are just calling each other out?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So plug for two books here. So one is um, Sparked, because when you know your type. You can actually ally with other people with different sparkotypes and they can help you do that because a maker is going to have a certain way in which they approach the world, which is going to be different than an advisor when you think about that. So that's one of the first things that you could do is sort of figure that out and get someone who's not your archetype or your sparketype to weigh in on a problem. You'll see things. Um, the second one is actually my book, Team Habits, which, you know, what we talk about in that book is how do we develop habits of belonging collaboration such that, Asking these types of questions actually facilitates belonging and performance and doesn't create the dysfunction that you talked about. Like, we can normalize questioning assumptions, turns out, right? Um, And so that if someone's like, hey, why are we doing this? It's not the the criticism of what all the team is doing. It's like, hey, let's actually articulate some of those assumptions, right, and hypotheses um, and then align on those. And that's a good thing to do because we're humans having a human experience across time and we forget stuff. Or I'm talking to you, Jonathan, and you and I agree with something, and then we forget that we haven't talked to Stephanie. Stephanie's out of the loop. She has no idea why we're doing what we're doing, right? And then all of a sudden, she's just a victim of this project that's happening to her, right? That's a confusing and jarring experience. What if, as a team, we could say, hey, real quick, I'm happy to do the work, but um, what are the assumptions and timelines and, and what's underneath this so that I know what's going on? So, to answer your question, one, you could take those questions and supply them to a neutral team format, meaning saying saying this, okay, hey team, you know, I was thinking about this project and here, here's what I think we're doing and here's the assumptions that I think are underlying some of these some of these things. Is this true? And just leave it open and everybody might be like, yes. And they might be like, oh, no, it's this other thing, right? And then you can have a collaboration point around that. And again, you could build a habit around doing things like that. In a team with a little bit higher belonging and a little bit higher trust, you can also ask the questions like, what are we actually feeling about this product or this project or this, what we're doing? Like, where's, where's the spark? Where's the love? Like, what, like, what's the mission behind this that makes us keep pursuing this objective, even as we're bumping into each other going along the way? So you can ask some of those questions. And again, same versions of those questions. What are we, what are our assumptions? What are some of the factors that we're putting in there? And let's articulate those and align on those. And then the second one is, what are our actual true feelings about this? Now, if you've got a team with poor belonging or you're in a place with poor belonging, it's actually quite dangerous to reveal your true feelings. And I, uh, I, I get that right? Um, but being a little bit more vulnerable, sharing that I'm excited about this, I'm trepidatious about this, like I'm fearful, right? Whatever those types of things gives people different vectors for like actually doing this. When I do strategic facilitation, something, sometimes what I'll do is do an exercise where I talk about um, elephants, cows, and mysteries. Um, and some people do swats. This is what I do, right? So elephants are, what are the elephants in the room that we need to speak to? Like, what's real? What's, what's, what's actually out there? All sorts of people come in. Cows. What are the sacred cows that we just don't touch? Um, let's, let's, what are they? Right. And then the mysteries is why, what are those things we do? And we just don't know why. Like, why, why do we do this? Right. And it elicits the team and it makes it safe for the team to just talk about it in sort of fun language. Um, and it depersonalizes it. It's not about a contention and it's like, Oh, why, like, we really do need to talk more about that elephant in the room. Like, there's something there that we can't just dance, keep dancing around. Or if it's a sacred cow, I had this happen in a, in a recent event. It's like, you know, they were saying there were these sacred cows and the new CEO was like, no, we actually don't have to do those things. <laughs> right. We don't have to accept that as a given. Like, we can go a lot of different ways. And the whole team was like, wait, what? <laughs> we've been doing this for six years and we don't have to do this. It's like, yeah, we can do something different. Like, let's come up with another plan around that. And it just opened up a lot of that space. Cause the team with the elephants and cows, we're stuck in that jar, right? We just don't talk about, we don't, don't talk about the elephant in the room and we don't touch the sacred cow. And we're just going to dance and talk the whole dance and, and shuffle the whole time. So things like that are how you open up, you know, when we learn as a team and as people to talk about principles and patterns, and not make the focal point people turns out we can have some really catalytic conversations because if you know, Jonathan, if you, I have a pattern and I say, Hey, I think this is our pattern together. You, you have options. You can say, huh, no, that that's right. And then we can figure out what to do from that. Or you can be like, Ooh, I don't see it that way. And then we can talk about that, but it's not Jonathan. Here's what you're doing wrong. And here's what you have to fix. It's here's what we're doing together. (laughs) Um, and we can talk about it in a in a place where we can again patterns principles processes, but not the people. This counters a lot of management thinking, by the way, because management thinking, especially when the way we tell those stories, we make it about the people. We make it about the individual people on the team. But that does not explain why, when the individual people on the team leave to go to different teams and organizations, the same patterns still happen. Right? If it were truly about the people. Different people, different patterns. What often happens, different people, same pattern. So that's how we can do that in team is really start talking about those principles, patterns, and processes that keep us sort of stuck and doing the same thing over and over again. And the basic point is, once you start articulating and talking about them, change can happen. It's only when it's stuck in your head as an individual, if it's your life circumstance, or if it's stuck in the individual heads of individual teammates, that it becomes that thing where you're all stuck in the jar and can't see it.
1: I mean, it's so interesting. And those those ideas, those prompts, I think are super valuable in the context of trying to um, awaken to what's really possible, to what assumptions you're making in a team context, as you were talking about that last part where you're you know, focused more on dynamic than the person. Also, what popped interestingly immediately to my head is, it seems like an increasing mechanism that, that you're seeing in corporate culture these days is the uh, the emergence of the PIP, the you know the personal improvement plan, as a precursor to either setting up for uh, a a letting go, or as as a, a, a theoretically legitimate tool, but I think so often it's actually really just a passive aggressive way to um, personalize things and not actually have to zoom the lens out and address. The relational dynamic that may exist not just between not just within a one human being not just even between two human beings but within a culture um that is the bigger issue and it's like you know it, it the personal improvement plan or program um is gonna do you're gonna keep issuing those and keep losing if you don't zoom the lens out and say well What about like the generalized relational improvement plan or the cultural improvement plan? Um,
0: Yeah. On that one real quick, like (laughs) I'm a pain in the butt as a coach, you know, this Jonathan, Um, but for my executives that are thinking about that, it's like, here's the thing. You don't get to write a pit unless you include two things, what team habits are going to change and what you as a leader are going to change as part of it. If you're not willing to do that and you just place it all on the individual, you are really not seeing what's going on. It's fundamentally unfair to the person and it's unfair to the team in the organization. You're taking the 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 easy, lazy road out. So if you're gonna write a pip, great. We might need one. But that individual doesn't exist. Like in most of the time, now there are some people, the exception and caveat here, There are some people, for whatever reasons, are just not a good fit, right? And it really is about them. But most of the time, there's some team patterns and there's some leadership dynamics at play that also need to be addressed and dealt with. And that way, if you do that, the person who's about to receive the PIP, the message isn't, you're broken and you got to get fixed. The message is, you're a part of something that we're all needing to improve. Here's your part. Here's the team part and here's my part. Do we agree? Are we a team on making this better? And if so, we can do that. But if like, we don't agree on that and like, we know where this is going to go a month later, you're going to get, you're going to get the call into the office and we know how this plays out. So if you leave a pip, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. It's not just a personal improvement plan. It's how are you improving your team? How are you improving that individual? How are you improving your leadership and management style?
1: Yeah, and it 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 lets you coming full circle. It lets you all be a part of the. It, it kind of like helps everybody step outside of the jar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, together. It's saying like I'm not leaving you alone inside with the top screwed on and, and just go figure it out. It's saying let's figure this out together, um, which I think is just a really important message to telegraph. Um, so as we wrap this up, any final thoughts on this topic?
0: Um, I'm going to veer back towards individuals. And there's one type of, I think, person in your orbit that everyone needs to have, but that kind of scares us and we confuse them. And that person is the, either the, you can think of them as the editor or you're, there's that person that for all the best reasons pushes you to be the best version of yourself. Like they know what you can be and can sometimes be frustrating and, and like, you know, annoying when they see you doing less than that. Now, not the devil's advocate guy, not that guy. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think because of a lot of different factors, we think the people in our success pack just needs to be the ultimate cheerleader and always like, yay, great job. But you actually do need someone that's like, "Mm, that wasn't quite it for whatever reason, right? From heart, from love. And here's what we can do better on that. So the reason I admit that is, or the reason I submit that is like, when we're thinking about people who can help you get out of the jar, it's the people who are willing to lovingly and with good EQ skills say, you know what? You're playing it safe right there. Or you know what? You kind of phoned it in right there. Or you know what? You're hiding behind this other thing here, right? Not always the most fun person to have around, but one of those critical people to help you get unstuck, and there's actually see what's going on. So don't write them out just because they catch you slipping and call you on it.
1: Mm, love it, and a great place for us to wrap up. Also, Charlie is always good jamming. Um, this is a topic where anyone who's feeling stuck, anyone who's feeling they can't quite figure out the next move, anyone who feels like they're just missing something, think about these ideas and some of the strategies that Charlie's offered. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks, Charlie. As always. And we will see you all again here next week on Sparked. Take care. Thanks for having me. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. Just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkatype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.